Halito, and welcome to Native Chalk Talk, a podcast by Natives for all. Here, we're keeping our Native ancestors' stories and history alive, while also sharing with you our Native cultures, traditions, and more. I'm Rachel Youngman, a Choctaw originally from Anadarko, Oklahoma. I hope you'll enjoy this journey with me as we learn from our Native American guests. And stay tuned for the end of each episode, where we'll talk about some great ways to support Native causes and or Native-owned businesses. Let's get started. Big news, y'all. One of my favorite Choctaw authors, Sarah Elizabeth Sawyer, has a new writing course called Fiction Writing American Indians. This course is going to show you how to discover the insight you need to write quality, authentic stories, learn practical approaches to researching Native cultures, and get answers to hard questions. I'll be taking the same course, so I invite you to take it with me. Just go to AmericanIndians.FictionCourses.com, but don't forget to use the code Choctaw, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K when you're checking out so you can get $30 off. Yep, you're welcome. Learning stuff and saving money. Let's do this. You're listening to the third and final episode in this series with author W. Michael Farmer on his book trilogy about the Mescalero Apache Yellow Boy. A word of warning to our listeners, these books and this episode do contain depictions of violence, so listener discretion is advised. So far, we've walked through the books Killer of Witches and Blood of the Devil, and now listeners, get ready for The Last Warrior, the continuation of this powerful story of the Mescalero Apaches who are fighting for survival against determined ignorance from autocratic government overseers, countering attacks from those misusing their supernatural powers and choosing sides in the white eye conflicts. So get comfortable and enjoy this story time with W. Michael Farmer. Michael, thanks for joining me again. The Last Warrior takes us through what years? Thanks for having me, Rachel. It's a, it's a real pleasure to chat with you. This story takes us through the years 1896 to 1918. It begins with Yellow Boy telling the reader the story of his life in those years. And he says, I am Yellow Boy, the last Mescalero warrior, killer of witches, man of two women with lodges far apart and father of children a long time to come and all too quick to die. I'm a survivor of the Apache hard times and disappearance at Bosque Redondo. I escaped the disarming and unhorsing of my people on their own reservation in the time of the Victoria War. I've tracked the great Apache leaders, Nahechi, Geronimo, Quo, Chihuahua, Loco, Jellikini, and Nade in the Blue Mountains. Uh, that's, that is the Sierra Madre or the Nantan Elpa, literally Chief Gray Leader, General Crook. And as a side, I might note that the movies and most books say Nantan Lupan, saying it means Chief Gray Wolf. But the Apaches didn't have the word Lupan, and some have said so. Uh, continuing with Yellow Boy, I fought the great witch, the Nayakis, the Mexicans, called Blood of the Devil, Sangre del Diablo, three times before I shot out his eyes to send him blind to the happy land. I've had dreams and visions and seen the future, burdened with bitter life on the reservation. 
my people and I have endured. Now I tell you of the days when a dream I had came to pass and what followed. So the book then goes on to say, in the season of the ghost face, when snow lay in patches across the Ayano dry prairie, and the cold wind whistled and moaned, shaking all the brush and pushing gray clouds across the sky scattered with dark spots of blue, an Inda white man with a great bitagalichu or red beard, hiding behind a spreading creosote bush stood and shot a man who drove a wagon. The man had a rifle across his knees and a small boy by his side. The man fell from the wagon to bleed in the dust. The boy stopped the wagon and ran to hold the man's hand and speak to him. Laughing and watching the man die, Bitaga Lechu made the boy climb back on the wagon. Soon the boy tried to escape. He yelled and whipped the team and drove the wagon in a hard run of the road toward the Oregon Mountain Pass, the Inda called San Augustin. Bataga Lechu and his vaqueros, uh, cowboys, laughed when the boy drove the team away. They knew he wouldn't get far before they caught him. The wagon, bouncing across the rocks and brush of the Iano, threw the boy out when it crossed an arroyo, no more than a cattle path. The boy lay still, face down in the rocks and sand. I thought he might be dead, but he soon staggered to his feet his face cut and bloody on one side, his right arm dangling and unmoving. Holding his arm close to his body, he ran up the cattle trail toward the mountains until he found a hiding place under gray tumbleweeds caught in mesquite thorns. I saw it all through my Shinato my telescope, literally big eye, from my hiding place on a little mountain near Baylor Pass. Seeing the evil Bikaraliku and his vaqueros brought to a child of their own kind, I was ready to use the power Usain had given me to save the one I would name Ombrecito. In a dream three harvests earlier, my power had shown me the ambush and the boys escape, and it had spoken to me more than 13 harvests earlier when I, scouting for Nantan Elpa, faced Geronimo on a high ridge in the Blue Mountains, in the land of the Nakaese. Geronimo said, a time will come for you to help an Enda boy do this. He will help our people. And did the Vaqueros find the boy? No, the, the Vaqueros couldn't find him. As Yellow Boy told it, the boy's forearm was broken and he had a long cut on the side of his face. I set the broken bone. He was brave and strong like an Inde, an Apache boy. Rufus Pike would take the boy to his home and care for him. Ah, uh, Rufus Pike. Uh, so what was the plan for Ombrecito? Rufus planned to uh, carry him back to his mother but Homercito refused to go and swore by horsehead fetish she had given him to take blood vengeance for his father. So I, I have to insert myself here. So what is a horsehead fetish? The, uh, the Apaches and nearly all the people of the desert carried little icons and sometimes beaded bags that were symbols of their supernatural powers. 
in Homer Cito's story, his mother had asked him to be her cavalero, her knight, and had given him a carved horse head once belonging to his grandfather. Mm -hmm. A horse head was like what you would find for a chest knight. She wanted Homercito to carry it to remind him that she trusted him to be her knight. Uh, he was eight years old at the time and look after his father for her. Gotcha. Uh, and so. as, as a side note, the reason that, uh, that she seems so extraordinarily out of line in doing this is because she believed that the boy's father had been threatened. And uh, she believed that uh, anybody with a small boy would not be attacked. Ah, uh, okay. That makes sense. Okay, so a man had killed his father, and he describes that man to Rufus, who swore up and down, and then said the man was Red Tally, who was a known assassin. So then Yellow Boy has one of his dreams. A powerful wind came, a west wind in a great storm with many lightning arrows twisting and moaning around him. A voice out of the wind said, a witch comes to destroy you and all your family. Be ready. I will help you. The witch must die. You are killer of witches. So Yellow Boy has some powerful dreams, as we know. So there eventually came a new agent named Teniente, Spanish for Lieutenant Stotler. And of course, we know with every new agent, there's some fear of what he would or would not do for the Apaches. So Yellow Boy had heard Stotler would make them follow the Inda ways. So what did that entail, those Inda ways? Yellow Boy tells the reader, Stotler orders every man on the reservation to cut his hair short and wear clothes like the Inda. Yiba was a, uh, a young Apache warrior and in a later conversation, he added his concerns that in the school, the Inda teacher uh, or the Inda teach our children Inda ways. And the children forget where they come from. They no, they no more see their fathers or mothers and respect them. That's really sad. I mean, you hear that yes. a lot. So all these kids are kind of on that cusp of, um, going into this new world that the Apaches weren't used to and coming out different than what they were used to as well. So these conversations show that whole issue a new agent can also bring to the table, trying to assimilate the Apaches into Inda ways. And children being placed in the boarding schools came to a head at this point. So tell us more. The, uh, the, the tribal police led by Sergeant Sabato who had come looking for Yellow Boy at his camp, noticed children playing in the snow, and he told the parents, you must bring them to the agency school. You must do this if you want your actions. Maria, mother of Yellow Boy's wife, Juanita Crote, you won't take our children. You'll face the straight shooting rifle of my son-in-law if you do. He can shoot out your eyes and send you to the happy land blind. I say the children stay. Now you go. If you value your life, don't come back here again. You go. I say no more. Ho, said Sabato. Mother of Yellow Boy's wives shows courage. Where is Yellow Boy? Has he no courage to face his brothers in the tribal police? 
and and as a side note, uh, Apache societies were matriarchies. Daughters lived close to their mothers. Uh, Mescalero husbands had the rule that they were never to see their mother-in-laws. That's a pretty good rule, I think. Uh, as a result, the mothers-in-law ran the show. Stotler threatened, and in some cases did, put the mothers-in-law in jail until they approved the children going to school. Wow. So Maria sounds tough, by the way. Um, this situation culminated to a boiling point until the day Sabado and his men appeared at the camp looking for Yellow Boy and telling parents their children had to go to school. Yellow Boy tells what happened. I was out of the teepee with my Henry rifle on my shoulder and fired three times before Sabado and the other two could raise their rifles. The hats of all three policemen sailed off their heads, each one with a bullet hole in the middle of the crown. Their eyes grew as big and round as Spanish conchos. Sabado, his teeth clenched under his thin, tight lips, started to raise his rifle, but lowered it when he saw me shaking my head. The other two had already lowered their rifles to the pommels of their saddles. Their long hair was gone, cut so their ears showed, and none lay on their shoulders. I felt embarrassed for them. I said, be careful who you ask for, Sabado. You might find him. Tell Stotler I'll come before the next moon, but at a place and time I choose. I won't accept any agent forcing our children to be slaves in the agency in the school. Send no policemen for our children. If we choose to send them to the end school, they'll go. If not, they'll stay with us. If you come uninvited, more than your hats will have holes and you'll wander blind in the happy land. Comprenden? They all nodded. Now they have a problem on their hands. What did Yellow Boy do next? Well, Yellow Boy went to the agency early the next morning after the police came. He talked to Blazer to learn where Stotler's office was and what Stotler was, uh, was up to and then went there to wait for him. As Yellow Boy tells it, I sat on the floor in the dark corner of Stotler's office next to the post he used to hang his hat and coat. When he came in, I quietly stood up. He stepped to his desk, turned up the flame on his lamp before taking off his hat and coat as he turned to hang them where I stood. His eyes grew wide and his mouth dropped when he saw me. He sucked wind and said with some heat and snarl in his voice, Ha! Who are you? What are you doing here? I stepped into the light so he saw me clearly. I am Yellow Boy. Private police come to my camp. They say Teniente Stotler wants to see me. I tell them go. I come when I am ready. They go. Now I am here. Who are you? Stotler's eyes narrowed. I'm Agent Stotler. So you're a Yellow Boy. He nodded the answer to his own question. Yes, I've been looking for you. Seeing my rifle and it was half cocked to safety, he made a coyote grin showing his teeth under the straggly brown hair on his upper lip and nodded toward a chair sitting in front of his desk. I kept my eyes on him as I reached for the chair, dragged it over to the stove and sat down, still cradling the rifle in the crook of my left arm. After taking a few puffs on his pipe, he blew a long stream of smoke toward the ceiling. 
all the while watching my face as if he didn't know that to my people, staring at a person's face was rude. I stared back, pulled one of my cigarros from my coat pocket, lit the match with my thumbnail and made a nice coal on the end before smoking to the four directions. If he knew anything about the people at all, he would understand I was there for serious business. He said, what I want to do is to make your people good self-supporting self -supporting citizens who can take care of themselves, who don't need the government to help them, and who are accepted as good neighbors by white people in this country. That means your people have to change. They have to look and dress like white people. They have to bathe and stay clean. They have to learn to support themselves and no longer live on what the government gives them. First, I'm making all the men cut their hair short like good white men and wear clothes like the whites. He ran his hand over his thinning hair as if touching and smoothing his thoughts. Next, all children over the age of five years, I think your people would say five harvests, attend, must attend school and not in some far off place like Albuquerque, but right here on the reservation. They must live at the school, but their parents can visit when permitted. They will learn to read, write, do sums, and speak English. They'll forget how to speak Apache, a backward language spoken by backward people. They'll learn to do sums. They'll learn a skilled trade like carpentry or blacksmithing so they can support themselves. They'll learn they can't marry a girl who's 12 or 13 just because she can have children. They'll learn the ignorance and superstition behind your ceremonies won't do them any good. I'm going to forbid Dayan magic, that is uh, medicine man magic, and ceremonies for that very reason. They're ignorant and they lead you in a bad way. And you'll build cabins for your families so they no longer live in those awful teepees, breathing smoke all the time, sweating in summer and freezing in winter. As he spoke, he leaned forward smiling, his eyes flashing at the thought of his vision and holding up a finger to make a point, he said, his voice rising, and I plan to buy 10 head of sheep for every man, woman, and child to raise as their own food and for wool they've been taught to use. I think this will lift your people up and it's something they've needed to do for a long time. What do you say? Are you with me to bring your people up to the level of the whites? I didn't know whether to shoot him or laugh at him. Yellow Boy then said, what if my people don't want to do this? No mescalero man wants to cut his hair or wear Indo clothes to sign a weakness. No woman will want him. No man will respect him. Farming is woman's work. No man will do that for long. Maybe the people don't want sheep. Sheep ruin the grass and have no sense. Sheep are wolf bait. Maybe the people just want their rations and a little beef in order to live in peace. We know how to work. We do men's work and women make baskets to buy things from the agency or blazer store that aren't in our rations. 
Maybe we want to stay in our teepees. They were good enough for our fathers. Maybe children want to stay with their mother and father until they marry. How you make the Shishinda people of the woods do all you say. Notice he mentions that cutting their hair will show weakness, and we know that's the same across most tribes. Uh, note to uh, Yellow Boy says farming is women's work, and they don't want to raise and manage sheep. He's telling Stotler he wants to live in the ways that have been his people's way for hundreds of years. Stotler actually brought uh, Navajo women down to the reservation to try to teach the, uh, the Mescalero women how to weave good wool blankets. I challenge you to try to find a single Mescalero wool-made blanket from that era. It just didn't happen. Stotler answers Yellow Boy, uh, and this is almost a direct quote from uh, something that he wrote in the next year. You don't seem to understand, my friend. You and your people have no power. I represent all the power. It comes from the big chiefs to the east. You must do as I say, or I will punish you until you do. No work, no rations. You don't cut your hair. I'll put you in jail and cut off your family's rations until you do. Only I can say what you can do on this reservation. Even if I have to get the tribal police to tie you down like a steer for brandy, and shear you clean like a sheep. He grinned, showing all his teeth and said gently as if he spoke to a child, do you understand, yellow boy? My right thumb pulled the hammer on my rifle back to full cock as I stared at him and argued within myself if I should kill him. Stotler's eyes grew large and he ran his tongue over his lips. He said, you know, if you kill me, the tribal police will never let you leave this building alive. Then the army will come and many of your people will die. Put that rifle on safety. In an interesting turn, Stotler has an idea. What does he say? How about a bet? You win and I'll let you wear your hair any length you want. You lose, you cut your hair, dress like a white man, get to work clearing land and stringing fence, and you convince the men in your band to do the same. He challenges Yellow Boy to a long-range shooting contest against an army surveyor named Major Fulton. Uh, and as a side note, Fulton was on the American long-range shooting team that beat the Irish, Irish at Creedmoor, uh, New York in 1876. And they were shooting at ranges of a thousand yards. Uh, and it was, it was really extraordinary. <clears throat> wow. Uh, Stodler says that they would shoot four targets each at 200 yards, freestanding shots, four shots straight. Whoever hits the most targets wins. Yellow Boy tells us, I smiled and accepted. I felt guilty taking advantage of him, but not wrong to take Stodler's bet. So the day came for the shooting contest. I went to Stotler's office. Major Fulton stood and faced me. He was nearly a head taller than me and had a great bush of black gray streaked hair covering the bottom part of his face. The day came for the shooting contest. I went to Stotler's office and Major Fulton stood and faced me. 
He was nearly a head taller than me and had a great bush of black gray streaked hair covering the bottom part of his face. I wondered how he managed to eat through all that hair around his mouth. His eyes went instantly to my Henry rifle and he smiled. He looked me over and nodded and stuck out his hand for the Inda shake. He said in a voice that reminded me of Blazer's calm and unhurried, I'm always glad to meet another marksman. I wish you luck, sir. Humph, my bullets go where Usen says. Up a canyon behind the agency, a big crowd of mescaleros and soldiers gathered to watch. Stotler stood on a stump and then turned to us and said, gentlemen, you may begin. So describe how it went from there. Major Fulton loaded his rifle with one of the big 4570 cartridges the Army used, sighted for a long breath on the first target, and then the rifle boomed. He ejected the spent shell, loaded another, and sighted again. He fired again and hit the second target, a little off center, but it went flying like the first. When the wind stayed low, Major Fulton quickly reloaded and shot his last two targets smoothly. Smiling, Stotler looking through his field glasses said, Major Fulton hits all his targets. Yellow boy, your turn. I shot all my targets in less time than Major Fulton had taken to do one. From his perch on the stump, Stotler said to the crowd, Yellow boy hits all his targets. It is a tie. Chief, send the men to hang the second set of targets and we'll move the bench back a hundred paces. Since Major Fulton shot the first the last time, Yellow Boy will shoot first in the new round. Totler said, now the wind is much worse and the moving targets are farther away. Shall I tie the targets in place so they don't move? Major Fulton frowned. I would suggest tying the targets in place and giving us a couple of practice shots to correct the wind before we shoot. Yellow Boy does not have a long-range rifle, so even without the wind, I have an advantage. I'll accept his judgment. Let him choose. I said, shoot now. After I fired my last shot, they all lowered their glasses, silently staring at each other. Stockler announced in his loud voice to the crowd, Yellow Boy hits four targets with four bullets. It's your turn, Major Fulton. Proceed to the bench, sir. Fulton loaded his 4570 cartridge, brought the big rifle to his shoulder and waited for his target to, to stop swinging in the wind. The boom from his big rifle filled the wind. Stotler slowly lowered his glasses and shook his head. Fulton reloaded and shot three more times, but only hit his last target and then only because the wind stopped to almost dead calm. Before I reached the people, Major Fulton stepped in my path and held out his hand. I took it for two quick pumps and Major Fulton said, I was once considered the best long range shot in the world. Today, I've found among the best Galeros a better shot than I could ever be. Congratulations, sir. I'm proud to have had a match with you. Stotler turned to the crowd and said, Yellow Boy wins the match and the bit. So Yellow Boy wins, and now the Mescaleros get to keep their ways, for now anyway. The days went on, and Yellow Boy went to speak with a new Diane, a medicine woman, in their camp. She said, I am Lola Mace, 
I traveled far to find the camp of Yellow Boy. Do I know you? Your face is in my memory from long ago times, but I cannot find the time or place. She bowed her head and looked in the fire. No, you have never met me to remember me, but you knew my father well. The stories floating on the winds in the Blue Mountains say you killed him. I'm the daughter of Fernando Mez, the man you knew as Sangre del Diablo. Dun, dun, dun. So you once saved me and my mother from him. Later, when he destroyed those you freed, he might have killed me too, but he saved me for reasons only gods of the Comanches know. So remember that, y'all, from the previous book. And we were wondering, why did he spare the baby girl? Anyway, Yellow Boy said, I remember learning that a baby survived his destruction of the slaves Bela Chesi and I freed from his hacienda. You're the child he gave to a woman in Casas Grandes? Yes, I'm that child. The woman you saw in Casas Grandes is his half-sister. If you ever saw her up close, you would never forget her. She has a green eye and a brown one. The Mexicans call her Ojo Verde, green eye. She was a beautiful woman, but the passing harvests have taken much from her. Ojo Verde trained me in the same ceremonies. Blast of wind blowing through the camp shook the trees again, and their limbs rattled like the sound of dried bones shaking in a cloth sack as if evil approached. Sangre del Diablo's woman often told me you killed her man, and one time she told me where she thought your camp was. She said that many times she had seen uh, sent little bands of Comanches to the basin to watch for you and to learn your ways, and that when the time was right, she would find you and use her power to make you suffer for killing Sangre del Diablo before she destroyed you. Wow. So what else does Lola Mez say? Lola Mez continued, I'm ready to use my power to help anyone here. Others in the camp have accepted me. Will you do the same? I took a long slurp and said, I'll accept you and your word until I know better. She folded her hands in her lap and looking down murmured, Bye, I thank you. So in this conversation, Lola Mace and Yellow Boy also talk about how their younger men aren't becoming warriors. They're still considered boys in the old ways because in their modern world, they don't go on raids like their ancestors did. Tell us more about that. Well, before the reservations, uh, a boy became a man by first serving as a novitiate to warriors on four different raids. The novitiates took care of the horses, cooked, carried water, and made camps. If a novitiate did well, and the warriors accepted him as, as a man, and the new warriors led the next raids to prove their skill and bravery. More important, the camp considered new warriors ready for a man's life, ready to take women, make, children, uh, make families, and provide for them and their wives' parents. As Yellow Boy said, the age when boys became novitiates usually began five or six harvests earlier than the ages of our boys. Nose Horses, his little brother, had seen 19 harvests, and Running Wolf, Belichese's son, 21. Living on the reservation, our men couldn't go on raids. They hunted, <clears throat> worked livestock, cut and hauled timber, uh, farmed, 
when they had to play hoops and gamble, age or physical maturity now determined when a boy became a man. Mm-hmm. So interesting. This is another way we're seeing the shift during that time period where the Apaches weren't fulfilling their old warrior ways because of that influence of the Inda and the reservations. And in the meantime, the idea of Lola Mace and Ojo Verde was on Yellow Boy's mind. So he went to speak and smoke with Kitsisilichu in Mexico in the Sierra Escuela mountain camp when Yellow Boy goes to visit his second wife, Moon on the Water. Describe that conversation for us. So uh, Yellow Boy said to Kitsisilichu, a woman named Ojo Verde, a Diane, now lives in the camp. She's the half-sister of Sangre del Diablo. She was his woman and raised his baby, a child saved from the slaves he destroyed after Belichese and I had set them free. She's a witch. She's sworn to make me suffer and then kill me in revenge for sending Sangre del Diablo to the land of the grandfathers but I'll send her to the grandfather's first when I shoot out her eyes and burn her body. The baby, his child saved from the slaves he destroyed and raised by Ojo Verde, is now a young woman and a Diane. She lives in my camp in Mescalero. Her name is Lola Mace. She told me this. It's Luku stared at me for a time, his face clouding with dark anger, and then he said, come. We left his fire and walked toward a lodge on the opposite end of his camp. At the lodge's blanket-covered door, Kitsuzilliku said in a deadly flat voice, Ojo Verde, come out. There was no answer. He threw back the blanket and looked inside. The lodge was empty. Whoa, so Ojo Verde had been there? Yep. Yep, she sure had. As Yellow Boy tells it, an old woman by her fire in a lodge nearby watched us with her head tilted in curiosity. He called to her. I look for Ojo Verde. Where is she? The old woman, nearly toothless, croaked. She takes bread to welcome the new ones in camp. I ran to my lodge, Kitsuthil Luku, right behind me. Moon worked by her fire, but her left hand had been wrapped with a piece of cloth. A large round piece of mesquite bean flour bread sat on a pan nearby. Our rush out of the dusky gloom startled her. I said, where did that bread come from? Why is your hand wrapped? Oh, Verde brought it to me. I ground my teeth in fear and, and fury. Eat none of that bread and it will make you sick. Moon bowed her head and stared at the ground as she said, I ate nothing she offered and the herbs she chewed and put on my fingers made them feel better. But I will do as you say. We go to the lodge of Nose Horses and Running Wolf. Maybe we will catch her there. So this is getting intense. Nose horses and running wolf sat by their fire, the mesquite bean bread on a pan between them, and half of it was gone. 
nose horses said, oh, brother, you come in time to eat a piece of this fine bread that Diane Ojo Verde brings to us. You'll like it. I saw nose horses had a cloth wrapped around the palm of his hand and asked, why is that cloth on your hand? He looked at his hand and back to me. She saw I had a rope burn, the one I got holding the horses when we came up Canyon Bonito yesterday, and she said she happened to have some herbs with her that would make it better. Wash your hand now. Throw that cloth in the fire. Ojo Verde is a witch, and we're her enemies. Wash your hand now. Throw that cloth in the fire. Ojo Verde is a witch, and we're her enemies. Kitsuziliku growled, where is she? Nose horses and running wolf turned pale and trembled as they pointed toward the corral. Nose horses said she told us she was going to check on her pony. Ojo Verde was not at the corral and neither was her pony. Down in the canyon, it was too dark to find her trail. Kitsuziliku said, we'll find her at first lights. She's getting away. So what happened next? <laughs> <laughs> Off they went to also tell all of the warriors about Ojo Verde. After leaving the council, Yellow Boy said, I noticed Nose Horse's hand that Ojo Verde had made medicine for was starting to swell. I asked him about it, but he said he had no pain. Moon waited for me in our lodge. She burned, her burned hand looked normal, but her lips were drawn tight across her teeth and her other hand rested on her belly. She looked up at me. Her eyes filled with pain. Husband, I burned the cloth and bread, as you said. They sounded like gunshots in the fire. Something is not right in my belly. I'm bleeding. Don't get any of, the, of this blood on you. Call Calico Dove to come and help me. At Kitsizil Liku's lodge, Calico Dove, and note that she's Kitsizil Liku's second wife, grabbed a basket filled with herbs and moss and was out of the lodge door ahead of me before I could turn around. When we returned, Moon lay on her blanket, her face twisted with pain and bathed in water as if she was very hot or had a fever, the blanket dark and wet. Moon saw me and said, I'm sorry, husband, something tears and rips at me inside. I bleed much. I fear our child tries to escape, and if he does, he will die outside me. So did Moon's baby die? Yes, she did. The baby died. Mm -hmm. There's more details about this portion of the story, so your listeners should check out the book. Oh, for sure. So sad. I hate this witch. So Yellow Boy then went to Lola Mace in his camp at Mescalero to ask for help to save Nose Horses and Running Wolf, who then lay by the fire in front of their lodge, their bodies turned so their heads pointed toward the east. Their eyes were open, but neither seemed awake or understood who was there or what had happened to them. I won't give away too many spoilers for our listeners, but in a nutshell, Lola Mays began the ceremony to heal the young men. I will say it was a powerful ceremony, one in which she even lost the vision in her left eye, and it looked like an old one's eye clouded over with the center white. So she also had scars on the left side of her face as if some big cat had clawed her. Scary. So let's talk about Ombrecito. What has been going on with him at this point? Okay, so let me uh, do a little scene set up here. Because uh, uh, 
the two wives of a yellow boy live in two widely separated camps. He lives with one for a month and then goes to the other one and stays with her for a month. And it's been back and forth like this for a long time. And on the way back, uh, he often stops and visits with uh, Rufus Pike. And uh, since Rufus is now raising Homer Cito, he naturally sees both of them at the same time. And so Yellow Boy went to see Homer Cito at Rufus Pike's house uh, a couple of times uh, during the period of time we're talking about here. Homer Cito, which means little man, AKA uh, Henry Fountain or Henry Grace, that is the little eight-year-old boy that he had saved, learned to shoot a rifle, was well-educated and was reading the Indot tracks on the stacks of paper they called books. Yellow Boy said, I listened one night as we sat on the porch and he read the tracks to Rufus and me. The tracks Rufus told me were a story from the Inda long times ago when the Inda had no guns, only bows and arrows and spears like the Apache grandfathers. The tracks spoke of a tribe named Greeks attacking another tribe named Trojans. The part I listened to spoke of a warrior named Ulysses who had a coyote mind. It was a good story. You may recall Homercito yearned to avenge his father's death. Rufus, his anger nearly making him swallow the tobacco he chewed, told Yellow Boy that the council that Endi held in Hillsboro Village to decide if Oliver Lee had killed Homercito's father decided Lee had done nothing and let him return to his rancho. The council's decision only made Homercito's desire for blood vengeance grow stronger with the passing of each new son. We'll hear more about Homercito later. There was news to come in the camp, yet another agent, Luttrell, would take the place of Stotler. And Yellow Boy said, I rode up the camp's canyon trail in the Rinconada. He was returning from Hitzizil Liku's camp. Something was not right. As I approached, I looked through the trees for the outlines of the teepees in the cold morning mists, but saw none. Staying low, I ran forward, hiding behind a new tree at every chance. Nothing was in the camp, not even bare teepee holes. The horse dirt in the corral showed horses had not been there during the ghost face, and supplies in the cache were all gone. It was as if we had never even lived there. I rode for the agency. From the ridge above the agency, I looked toward the Fort Stanton Road and saw the great Inda houses for the reservation school Stotler had tried to make us use. I pulled up the Shinacho and watched the school big houses. The doors opened on the one where the children slept, and they began to march out, all the same in their uniforms, to the place where they ate meals. The short youngest ones marched at the head of the lines, boys in one line, girls in another, each line led by an Inda adult. I could see their faces, none happy, and I was glad my son was not there. But as I watched them, I felt my heart tighten and my gut squeeze. What did he see? So his son, Haya, marched in that line of children led like horses to eat in a barn. I looked down the line and saw them all, 
every child from my camp, Yeba's child always lasts. And Ka's daughter, Redbird singing, marched in the girls' line. A little further back, Ka and Dear Woman's nearly grown son, Para de Atran, marched in what could have been a soldier's uniform with the older boys. Stotler had kept his word for two years after our shooting bed. Now I saw his word had been broken and our children taken. This must not stand. I would kill the agent to stop it if I had to. But first I had to find Juanita and the rest of my people. Doc Blazer had died and now Yellow Boy went to see Blazer's son, Almer, to ask what had happened to his people. Almer said, your people are spread all over the reservation. Juanita and Maria have their teepees up a canyon west of the Fort Stanton Road about three miles up from there. The others are scattered in camps around the reservation. All your people are unhurt. Their spirits are low. Luttrell, who replaced Stotler, thinks that Ten Pot Martinet was a great man and wants to continue his rules. He won't listen to anyone except his faraway chiefs. Sabado told the new agent Luttrell, the people in your camp didn't have to follow Stotler's rules because you had won a shooting bet. Luttrell got red in his face, pounded his fist on the desk, and said he didn't have any bet with you. He said, if you tried to resist, to kill you and anyone else who did. He had them take all the children old enough to attend the school and tell your people that after the men cut their hair to come to the agency for supplies and trousers the men had to wear, or there would be no rations during Ghostface. Sabado told me that when the police rode over the ridge with those children, they heard every woman in your camp outside in the wind and snow wailing, even the grandmothers. He said your warriors did nothing. It was like they were carved from stone. But he saw the fire in their eyes and was glad he and the other police left when they did. So obviously this angered Yellow Boy. What did he do? Uh, Yellow Boy conversed with Juanita and said, I felt the same fire for vengeance, but I knew it was a desire I could never satisfy, hollow and without muscle and bone. Without destroying my family and friends, I would never be able to settle the debt of vengeance. I owned, I owed the Inda for taking our child to teach him Inda life and train him never again to be a mescalero. I knew that when Haya grew to be a man and have children of his own. He would only know to teach them the ways of the Endah. Our own children and grandchildren would no longer know they were Mescaleros, Apaches, Shishende, people of the woods. On either side and laying her head against my shoulder said, Haya will forget us in the Endah school. They won't let him speak as we do. He is allowed to use only Inda words. They've cut his hair and given him the Inda name, David. So Yellow Boy just had no choice as was common considering what was going on those days. He stated to Juanita, I don't like the Inda trousers, but I'll wear them over my breech cloth. I'll cut my hair a little, but leave it so it touches my shoulders. Before I go to the agency, you'll braid it so it stays on top of my head, and I'll wear a hat. My hair is my pride. The Inda won't take it. 
You write how Juanita and Yellow Boy watched their son, Haya, from afar as he went into the school. So sad. Um, they did get to see their son every now and then, like once a season for two or three days. Lola Mace had warned Yellow Boy that his life is in danger because of Ojo Verde. Something super creepy happens at this point, and Yellow Boy is almost murdered. So listeners, you're just going to have to read the book to hear what happens. It gives me chills, so check out the book. All right, now we have some good news. Moon on the Water discovered she'd have another baby, which turned out to be a boy, and they named him Redondo. So that was in 1900. Around that time, Yellow Boy had another dream. Tell us about that. Well, I won't give away any of the details, but Yellow Boy has the dream that sits up and says, I must go now. A witch comes to kill Hombrecito. I reached Rufus's rancho at the beginning of the third night after leaving Moon and Redondo in the Blue Mountains. The face of Rufus was bruised and cut, so I knew part of my dream had come to pass. Far to the south, I could see the flashing arrows flying between clouds and big stumpy legs of rain as wind and thunder spirits walked in our direction. I told Hombrecito and Rufus what I had seen in my dream. We had to hide plenty quick, so we moved to a place on the cliff wall above his shack. Listeners will have to read the book to know what happens. Oh, Lordy, leaving us sitting on the edge of a cliff. All right, Agent Latrell left the reservation and a new agent, Carol, came on board and treated the Mescaleros with respect. Finally, we have a good agent again. He didn't force the Mescaleros to live in the cabin Stotler had made them build, so most lived in teepees. Big chiefs in the East said that the Mescalero ought to sell their pony herd and buy good draft horses for heavy work like logging so they could earn money to buy supplies and other things they needed, which they did during the next harvest. The Mescaleros sold 500 ponies and bought draft horses. Pride doesn't often stand in the front of a man needing to feed his family, but Yellow Boy didn't sell his pony. He didn't farm and he didn't need a big, slow horse. This was a big deal, the Mescaleros going from ponies to draft horses. Why so? Uh, unlike in the uh, days in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, when the Mescaleros were wild and free, and not on the reservations. And a horse for them was just a tool. It wasn't a measure of, of wealth. By 1900, they had become a source of wealth because uh, they, they couldn't ride a horse to death and go get another one, steal mm -hmm. one somewhere. And the Mescaleros didn't have and couldn't find harness for their little horses to pull farm implements to, or to drag tree trunks out of the forest. And perhaps most importantly, the government wouldn't pay them to use their horses unless they could show they were actually getting work done. It was a sad, bad time for them to lose their fast little horses to draft horses, but they really didn't have any chance. They didn't have a choice at all, did they? It just, it was happening and they couldn't stop it. Yeah. Time is marching on among the Mescaleros and they continue <clears throat> to see change. Many were dying from the worms the Inda called tuberculosis, and it was rumored that the Lipans in Chihuahua, who had relatives among the Mescaleros in Magusha's band, would come to the reservation. 
on a lighter note, Juanita bore another son who was named Hidlo. He laughs. They named him John at the Indus school, and he was called John Hidlo on the reservation. The Indian, the Indus school had left little. The Indus school had little left to teach Haiha, who they had named David, and Juanita and Yellow Boy thought they would let him return to live in their teepee. Agent Carroll sent for Yellow Boy one day to have a talk in his office. He said, Yellow Boy, your son David, he saw me frown and then used his proper name. Your son, Haiha, <laughs> has much light behind his eyes. He reads and can make tracks on paper as well as anyone his teachers have taught, and he can do sums in his head correctly without making tracks on paper. He doesn't forget anything. My wife leads the teachers at the school here. She watches how Haihe helps teach the other children these things and um, knows he has much light behind his eyes. She wants him to go to a faraway school where he can learn much more than we can teach him. She thinks maybe he might learn to be a teacher and come back here to the school. I think she's right. Unlike some agents, I won't send him away without your consent. I have too much respect for the Mescaleros. Will you let him go? Agent Carroll wanted to send um, Yellow Boy's son far away when he was 12 harvest. That's a time in a boy's life when he would be doing other things in the Apache way. What would that normally look like, Michael? By that age, in the old days, he would have been hunting rabbits and other small animals, training for war and raiding, learning to handle horses and making his body strong to endure the rigors of war and raiding and going without food or much of anything else for periods of time that could stretch into weeks. Yeah, he fit right into that generation of that change we talk about. No right. more hunting rabbits and training for raids. He would be an educated man. So Yellow Boy said, we finally understood our days, the days when we and our people were free to live as we wanted within the reservation, were gone forever for our young and would pass soon enough forever for the old Apaches. So this was hard to read. Um, they knew they had slowly but surely lost this battle, and now their kids would be an example of that change that had come. But Haiha was excited to further his education, and he went in the iron wagon to Tularosa for his ride to the faraway school. It would be eight harvests before they would see their firstborn son again. Now, Hombrecito also went to school, right? Uh, yes, he went to a school far away in the West. Uh, in fact, he went to, to uh, what was to be Stanford by the big water and had gone uh, and was gone for several harvests. At one point, Homercito came back for a visit. In the darkness, the teepees scattered in the canyon with firelight showing around their bottoms with like glowing oil lanterns. It was a place of peace. Yellow Boy told Homercito the story of his meeting with Geronimo 25 harvests ago when he was an Apache scout for Nantan Elpa and Al Sieber, who was chief of scouts. Geronimo told him, a time comes, you'll need to help an Indah boy who will help our people. Yellow boy, I think the one Geronimo told you to help, he waved his hand parallel to the ground. It's a good thing, and I'll help the people the rest of my days. Come back to us, Hombrecito, you'll, help give us new life. This I will do, yellow boy. 
I speak straight. Yellow, yellow boy, per Agent Carroll's request, joined the tribal police again in the harvest time the Inda called 1907. During this time, the younger Mescaleros especially were catching on to tending their cattle and growing their herds. James Carroll ordered the tribal police to help protect Mescalero cattle from Inda thieves. Something we don't have time to cover today is the incredible and edge-of-your-seat story of Roy McLean, whose brother went missing and Yellow Boy was charged with hunting down his killer. I love the story, but there's so much to it and even just the richness of the environment that you describe. So I'll let you readers delve into this story in the book. You won't want to put it down. So do you all remember Woe? Well, his youngest son, Doc Lugui, came to see Yellow Boy, who welcomed, who welcomed him once he realized who he was. So tell us why Doc Lugui came to the reservation. So the, the scene is uh, Doc Lugui and, and Yellow Boy are having a talk. Doc Lugui said, like my uncle Geronimo, I'm a prisoner of war for the past 23 years. The white eyes sent me to the Carlisle school to learn to read and write and learn a trade while they moved my uncle and our people from Florida to Alabama to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I learned cattle husbandry at Carlisle. When I left Carlisle, I moved back with my people at Fort Sill. And now I'm in charge of our cattle herd. Daklugi continued all great leaders who were in captivity, Chihuahua, Loco, Nane, Mangus, and many others have gone to the happy place. Geronimo still lives, but I think the end will give us our freedom soon. The army once said it would give us Fort Sill and the Comanche and Kiowa agreed. Now the army says it may decide to stay. Where will we go? I have to, I have a pass to look at Mescalero and ask your leaders if they will accept us as brothers. Yellow Boy said, I knew your father. He helped me find the witch I hunted, Sangre del Diablo. The Mescaleros need more people for our reservation to keep the Inda away. I know, I hope your people come. We didn't shake hands as the Inda do, but we waved our hands parallel to the ground. I said, bring us your people. He nodded. When the white eyes let us go, it will be so. I watched him get on the train and expected to see him and his people soon. They came four harvests later, the white eye chiefs in the East think and act very slowly. Less than a moon after Doc Lugui left, the men sat around talking. James Carroll said, you fellows might be interested in knowing that Geronimo went to the happy land six days ago. Kahe said, who killed him? James Carroll shook his head and said, nobody killed him. He had pneumonia. He patted his chest and added, you know, breathing sickness. We have it here at Mescalero sometimes. They say he grew sick after sleeping out in a cold rain at Fort Sill. The room was quiet, except for the fire hissing and popping inside the stove. Geronimo had spoken straight when he told me in the Blue Mountains to take care of a young boy in the desert when I found him. I was glad I did. 
Hombrecito had grown into a good man, half Inda, half Mexican, all mescalero. Perhaps just as Geronimo said, he would help us someday when he returned from the Inda Dayent school. And there you have it, another great warrior gone to the happy land. We haven't heard much about Ojo Verde lately. Anything new there? Uh, Yellow Boy overheard Kahe, as a friend of his, talking with ancient Carol about a woman staying and keeping company with many the wife of a man the tribal police had to take down. And that's, as you say, in a previous, uh, in a previous chapter. James Carroll nodded. How is the woman called? Kahe made a face. I didn't ask and many didn't say, but she's easy to remember. She's tall and has a brown eye and a green one. So, oh, Verde, at last you come, thought Yellow Boy. Now I'll find satisfaction in ending your evil. I hurried to the barn and saddled my pony. I rode to Minnie's teepee, intending to kill the witch as fast as I could. Sorry, I was, I had pushed a button on my computer and I was worried my video had gone away, but okay. Oh, so Yellow Boy hopped on his pony and headed to Minnie's teepee, but Ojo Verde had already left, returning east to her people, the Comanches. She left Minnie a gift in a little basket. Yellow Boy told her to burn the basket and everything in it. I'm going to do that paragraph again, just in case I don't like how I said that. Um, so Yellow Boy hopped on his pony and headed to Minnie's teepee, but Ojo Verde had already left, returning east to her people, the Comanches. She left Minnie a gift in a little basket, and Yellow Boy told her to burn the basket and everything in it. Minnie tossed it on the fire. The basket made of grass stems burned fast and left what was inside exposed and barely scorched. It was a big carved rattlesnake head, its jaws open wide with its fangs down, ready to bite. It was covered with beautiful beadwork, and its eyes were made from two round clear stones that seemed to bulge from the sockets. There were streamers of feathers of many colors coming out of its mouth and beadwork on top and at the back of its head. Whew, close call. <laughs> yes, indeed. A little time passed as Yellow Boy planned his next move. He said, one day in the season of many leaves, when the wind came, I was sitting under the trees, shaping a bow. Juanita and Moon, Ask Lola Mace and Falling Water, Nose Horse's second wife, to join us. And just as they entered, there was a flash of light, an arrow from the Thunder People, followed by the rumble of their voices. As Juanita was closing the teepee door, Redondo, who sat looking out the doorway, watching trees shake in the wind on the far side of the canyon, said, Look there. Juanita glanced out the open crack of light before she tied the door closed. I, she said, I saw nothing, my son. What did you see? There was a rider on a horse on the ridge looking this way. I know, I saw one. Didn't you see one, mother? Juanita glanced at me and she said, no, son, I saw no one, but that doesn't mean you didn't. As the rain began to fall, I lifted the edge of the teepee cover on the side opposite the door and crawled under it into the rain and shadows. I heard Redondo ask where I was going and Juanita say, 
keep silence. I crawled through the brush along the canyon edge of the side with the teepees, staying out of sight of the other side of the canyon. It was raining hard, so hard, no one on the far ridge could have seen me anyway. Down the ridge on the backside of the spot where Redondo had pointed, I saw a black pony tied to a bush out of sight of the teepees. I cocked my rifle and moved like a shadow toward the pony. It was hard to do. The leaves of every brush of every bush were loaded with water waiting to shake and fall. I had to move slowly and very carefully to avoid nudging the bush and announcing my progress to whoever owned the black pony. I crept within 50 yards of the pony but saw no sign of its rider. The rider must still be watching our teepee, but from where? I paused listening for a while, but only heard the thumping of my heart before edging forward. The clouds were passing and the sunlight began sending shafts of bright white light through the branches and steam rising off the ground. Suddenly the brush on the ground between me and the pony and just behind and to my right and left seemed to explode, hurling sticks, small bushes and pine needles into the air. I saw a face painted in black above the nose and in white below. I shot an eye. I loaded a new cartridge as my rifle swung in a fast arc to find a clear shot at the figure on my right. But before I could shoot, Two rawhide riata loops whipped over me from behind and to my left and were jerked tight around my legs and neck. With sharp, quick pulls, they threw me to the ground. I landed hard on my back and breath left me. My rifle was jerked out of my hands and disappeared. The loop on my neck tightened as I grabbed my knife and slashed left and right while I struggled to stand. I couldn't breathe and I felt my body being stretched beyond its length. I saw a club raised, a flash of bright light and darkness filled my eyes. Light returned. I hung by my wrists from the limb of a tall pine growing on a little flat on the ridge below the black pony. My mind began to clear as if awakening from a dream. I felt a riata burn circling my neck, the pull of my shoulder joints against the riata where I dangled, a dull pounding ache across my forehead, and the crinkle of stuff on my face that I knew must be drying blood. I looked down and saw my moccasins dangled just above a pile of brush. My knees were lashed together, my upper arms tied above my head with tight, solid knots. I hung like a side of beef ready for butchering. As I came from the darkness, I realized the people burned witches this way. Ojo Verde planned to burn me like a witch, of course. I thought of burning someone who was not a witch, as a witch must fill her mind as the best possible revenge. As my eyes began to focus, I saw Ojo Verde sitting a few feet away with her legs crossed and my rifle lying in her lap. She had black paint around her eye sockets in the same way her brother had painted his. 
and there were vertical streaks, the color of blue stone from her forehead to her jaw, running down her face. Her hair hung in braids woven from black and white streaked hair. When she saw my eyes opening, she bared her teeth, stained the color of blood and a snarling grin. A man on each side of her and up on the ridge line were two more who looked, who looking young enough to be on their first raid, watched where the teepees stood. She cocked her head to one side when she saw my eyes open. So, killer of witches, we haven't killed you after all? That's good. That is very good. It will increase my pleasure to see you screaming in a fire. How do you like the Riata skills of my friends from Quana Parker's Rancho? Are they not excelente? I croaked, my voice slow to return after being choked by the Riata around my neck. I think maybe there's one less vaquero on Quana Parker's Rancho. Or Comanche vaqueros, it's probably best they can do. Bring them to Mescaleros and Apaches will teach them better. Ojo Verde said, take the women and boys in the teepee, then we begin. She opened a bag she carried around her neck and pulled out a sliver of bone about a half a hand width long. She pulled her knife, felt its sharpness with her thumb and began to carefully scrape and shape the bone sliver into a tiny arrow. She looked at me and showed her red teeth again. The vaqueros will be taking your women and children soon. Then I heard a thump, a sound like a fist striking an overripe melon. Ojo Verde's face froze and her eyes rolled back in her head. The rifle slid out of her hand and she fell over on her right side, blood oozing from the hair on the side of her head. I looked up the ridge path and saw Juanita running for me with her sling in one hand and her knife in the other. She smiled, her eyes wide with relief and pulling her knife began cutting the ropes that held my hands, arms, legs, and feet. Feeling began to return to my arms and shoulders as she helped me to a sitting position and slapped and kneaded my muscles to get the circulation back. Ojo Verde, one side of her face turning blue and her hair matted in blood, sat up and again tried to rest her elbows on her knees for rifle support. The end of the rifle waved back and forth. Juanita raised up on her knees out of, out of sight behind a tree and pulled a smooth brown river stone from a sack tied to her belt, mounted it in her sling, and moving so she had a shot in Ojo Verde, she twirled the sling just fast enough for the stone to stay in its pouch. We heard no more from Ojo Verde. I saw that she had taken the yellow boy and gone. She had stolen my power. My stomach felt like I had eaten bad meat and my head hung in despair. My mind confused and, enra and enraged. I had to reclaim my power. Wow, that was intense. I hope y'all aren't sitting in a dark room by yourself listening to this, so creepy. <laughs> Yellow Boy said, Juanita pulled me to my feet, and I staggered down the ridge following Ojo Verde's trail. 
Tracks showed Ojo Verde had taken two ponies and ridden off down the canyon. Juanita lifted her chin with pride and smiled. We decided to ambush the Comanches when they came for us. Rest now. Yellow Boy fell asleep and had a dream. He sat up, eager to ride. At almost the same time, Moon and Juanita awoke and sat up in their blankets. Moon whispered, our husband dreams, he has visions. Usun has now shown me the way to Lola Mace and the witch who took her. I must go. Then what happened, Michael? Yellow Boy tells his reader, I rode through the Guadalupe Mountains searching for Ojo Verde. As I drew closer to where I had lived as a boy, I heard chanting and a slow rhythmic beat made on a stiff, dry hide. Looking through the trees, I saw the bare backs of three warriors ready for war, wearing only breech clothes. Their hair and tightly woven braids, and on top of their heads, two or three eagle feathers that showed that they were battle-seasoned Comanche warriors who had counted coup. Streaks of blue and white paint looking like lightning arrows ran the length of their arms and the sides of their legs. And someone had painted symbols in white and red I didn't recognize on their backs. They kept time pounding on the head, on the hide, with a hoop stick in one hand while holding a repeating rifle in the other. At the center of the circle stood a tall, shiny pole, perhaps half a, a forearm in diameter. Lola Mays was lashed to it. Tied at the top was a beautiful, beautifully beaded leather sack that held my power, my rifle, pointing straight up toward the Milk River made by points of light filling the smooth black sky. The face of Lola Mace was purple and yellow from bruises, but she stood there, her good eye nearly swollen shut, her bad eye gleaming in the firelight her jaw lifted in defiance, waiting without fear the evil Ojo Verde would surely bring her. Lightning flashed many times in the coming clouds and the occasional lightning arrow striking the earth lighted the great legs of rain falling from them. The thunder and wind spirits grew stronger. Soon great drops of rain fell, rattling the leaves and branches in the trees and exploding in sprays of small drops when they hit something hard. Ojo Verde and her warriors had run to a shelter under a big slab of rock across the field where our horses used to graze. With the rain pouring down, I left my hiding place in the brush and splashed up to Lola Mace, pulling my knife and two strokes of my blade, splashed the Rialto lines holding her. Raising her head, she opened her mouth for a swallow of water and then yelled, Yellow boy, I knew Usin would send you. Standing on Lola Mace's shoulders, I could just reach the rifle barrel without touching the leather fetish holding it. I grabbed the barrel with one hand and fighting to keep my balance, slashed the leather with my knife and pulled the rifle free. As soon as I had it, I jumped backwards from her shoulders. I pointed in the direction of the trail he watches and I had used many harvests ago to get to the cliff tops and yelled, run. 
We ran to the top of the ridge and moved down the cliff trail to the shallow cave he watches and I used when we watched the road far below for worthwhile wagon trains to raid. Ola Mays asked, now that you have your power back, can I use your bow to fight the witch? I pulled the fine mulberry wood bow out of its case, slid the string of sinew up to the end notch to bring it, to string it, and handed it to her along with arrows. As the sun reached the place of shortest shadows, we heard the Comanche warriors coming closer, whistling back and forth and making occasional barking howl as they signaled to each other while they looked for signs of us along the clifftops. A whistle and a bark sounded just above us. Ola Mace looked at me and began to draw the bow. I shook my head and signaled silence before crabbing over to the place where the path came around a big vertical boulder before entering the bench. I waited, listening where a warrior would come around the edge of the boulder. He eased around the boulder and his eyes grew wide when he saw me suddenly appear out of the shadow. He started to raise his rifle, but I pushed hard against his chest to make him stumble backwards and making him fall into nothing but the bright, clear air, tumbling end over end. He crashed against the boulders in the canyon far below us, his body bouncing and rolling until it disappeared under some junipers on one side. I love this part. Soon the warriors arrived above us. We waited while they paced and looked over the edge, calling back and forth to each other. Lola Mays whispered, they heard him yell, but didn't see him fall. They don't see him anywhere below. They're trying to decide where he is. I have a plan. Maybe I can lure Ojo Verde to come down here to us. I nodded and she moaned loud enough for the ones above us to hear her and called out to them in their language, making her voice sound like a man's growling in pain. Oh, I, my leg is broken. I see bones punching out of my skin. There is a big snake down here. Be careful. Help me. Maybe the snake comes. Hurry before I go to the happy land. Oh, a voice above us yelled. Oh, we bring Ojo Verde. Watch out for the snake. Lola Mays nodded and spoke in a low voice. She will come by herself. The other two fear snakes. That's how she controls them. She will bring her snake medicine and maybe a weapon to use against it. I brought my rifle to full cock and sighted where she would appear from around the boulder. We waited. Ojo Verde called from near the boulder that guarded the shelf in front of us. Grandson, do you still live? Lola Mays moaned. Ah, help me, help me, the snake is near. The spirits will protect you, I'm coming. Something was not right. A few pebbles rolled off the top of the overhang and bounced off the shelf to sail rattling down the steep canyon wall below us. The warriors were quiet but the falling pebbles said they were right above us. Ojo Verde must have decided we were waiting in ambush. I tapped Lola with the end of my rifle to get her attention and pointed above us. She nodded. In two or three breaths, we saw the long tip of a Comanche spear pass the boulder where I had waited for the warrior. Ojo Verde walked around the boulder edge, holding the long spear in one hand and her knife in the other. She stared into the dim light of the overhang where we waited and, as her eyes became familiar with the dark shadows, saw us. Ojo Verde, a sneer of triumph on her face, didn't hesitate. 
She charged the Lamaze with a long spear. Before she could complete the first step, the sinew bowstring hummed. The arrow hit Ojo Verde high in the chest, nearly in the same spot where I had shot Sangre del Diablo in the Rio Grande. Her charge with the spear held at waist height carried her forward. The shock of the arrow and spear's impact sent Ojo Verde staggering backwards. Roaring and showing her red teeth in a snarl like some wounded animal, Ojo Verde grabbed the spear shaft quivering beside her to stop her backward stagger while raising her knife. Her Comanche warriors, their heads painted white with black eye sockets like Sangre del Diablo, screaming their courage, clinging to riadas with one hand and holding revolvers with the other, swung onto the bench from the top of the overhang. I shot an eye of each one, sending them staggering backwards into a red cloud of blood and brains that floated them off the edge of the bench, twisting and turning as they crashed into the canyon wall and slid a distance down the wall, leaving blood streaks on the canyon stone. Lola Mays, holding the middle of an arrow in her hand like a knife, had jumped to her feet and charged the witch. Ojo Verde screamed, die, dog's daughter, and pulling forward on the spear shaft made a great arching swing of her knife for Lola Mays that sliced through the front of her shirt but missed her belly. Lola Mays grabbed Ojo Verde's wrist and stabbed her arrow into Ojo Verde's right breast. She let go of the spear shaft and grabbed Lola Mays by her shirt as she stumbled toward the bench edge. I shot the fist holding Lola Mays' shirt, Lola Mays, blinded by the spray of flesh and bone and blood, let go of both the wrist behind what was left of the bloody powerless hand and Ojo Verde's knife hand. She fell backwards into the overhang, Ojo Verde staring at what was left of the hand stump, pumping blood in squirts, staggered a step back to the bench edge, mumbling, I don't understand, brother. I don't understand how these little people killed us. My power took her green eye and then her brown one. The sound of the shots echoing across the cliffs and filling the overhang with the crack of deafening thunder as she sailed back through the spray of her own blood and brains. We ran forward to see her falling, falling, and time seemed to slow down, making her fall appear as if she were a dead leaf drifting to the ground in the ghost face. In the quiet late afternoon stillness, she sailed past her warriors on the floor of the steep canyon and smashed against a boulder. Her body lay stretched like a skin over the big boulder, her sightless eyes staring at the darkening sky, black streams of blood rolling in tiny rivulets down the sides of what was left of her face. That was the end of Ojo Verde. It was a happy time when we returned to our teepees at Mescalero. My women and falling water made a great feast and invited many friends to come to our fire and hear our story. What else was going on during this time? The, uh, the next three harvests were good. There was a little trouble on the reservation. Redbird singing, daughter of Ka and Deer Woman, married a young man from Peso's camp. We Mescaleros called him Bit Bito da Hale, his fast rope. But the Inda insisted on calling him Charlie Rope. They had an Inda style wedding and refusing to live in a teepee, they built a house close by the teepee of Kai and Dearwan. Kai thought the Inda school at the agency had taken all their sense about how to live 
but he said nothing and decided to let them learn by experience, which was better, house or teepee. And here we have another change happening. Even the teepees were being exchanged for houses. And then, surprise, surprise, they saw yet another agent, C.R. Jeffries. Also during that time, word came that Geronimo's people had been released from captivity and would be coming to Mescalero on an iron wagon to Tolerosa during the sun that Inda named April 4th, 1913. I remember when you and I did that episode on Geronimo and how he never did get to come back to his homelands. And so uh, after he died, though, his people did. So that kind of fits right into the story of Geronimo as well. After he passed, his people were able to go back home. So C.R. Jeffries asked several tribal policemen, including Yellow Boy, to accompany him and Ted Sutherland, the new reservation livestock superintendent, to the Tularosa Iron Wagon Station to meet the iron wagon carrying the Chiricahuas. They would help unload their animals and possessions and guide them to Mescalero. Tell us the story about the dogs. We need a little relief and a a fun story. (laughs) The Inda feared the Chiricahua cattle and dogs might bring Texas fever from Fort Sill. Their army, Diane, said it was a sickness carried by ticks and it killed cattle. The army had made the Fort Sill people sell all of their cattle and leave their dogs behind to keep Texas fever out of New Mexico. Too bad, I thought, we Apaches like our dogs. As soon as the train door opened, though, a flood of dogs, collies, hounds, tame wolves, and the little ones of breeds I had never seen before, black ones, brown ones, spotted ones, dogs of every size, shape, and color, burst through the horse's legs and jumped out the open door, barking and yapping, twisting and turning, happy to be out of the iron wagon. Most of them ran up the iron road to where the women and children were climbing down from their iron wagons. The solemn face of this Fort Sill man broke into grins and laughs as some dogs barking in their tails wagon, wagging ran up to sniff their master's hands. Daklugi, shrugging his shoulders, turned to Ted Sullivan and said, we didn't know the dogs were on the train. We hated to leave them, but maybe the train crew put them in the cars with the horses. Can we keep them or must we kill them? Ted Sutherland shook his head. There are no cattle here now. Get any ticks off of them. Just know that if Texas fever shows up in any of your livestock, they'll all have to be put down, sick or not. It'll be your loss. There were nearly 40 men in the 187 Fort Sill people to help us with the unloading of their animals, farm equipment, and possessions. I'm so glad they got to keep the dogs. Dogs make everything better. (laughs) (laughs) So when the, yes, they do. (laughs) I've got one that's been growling and barking around here. So I hope, I hope you guys haven't heard her too much, but So when the Chiricahuas arrived and began setting up their tents, our people had many happy reunions among family members separated a long time. I mean, that's such a thought, thinking about them kind of reuniting reuniting now and getting to see kids and grandkids and all that. So we feasted and visited for five or six sons until Dakwagi and Eugene Chihuahua asked C.R. Jeffries if the Chiricahuas could have a place of their own on the reservation 
Jeffries told Doc Lugie and the others to ride across the reservation and find a place where they wanted to live. Only Chato, still very bitter that the white ice had forced him to go to Florida after he served them well as a scout, chose to live by himself. He did this because the Chiricahuas said he was a traitor to his own people and would have nothing to do with them. Only Chato, still very bitter that the White Eyes had forced him to go to Florida after he served them well as a scout, chose to live by himself. He did this because the Chiricahua said he was a traitor to his own people and would have nothing to do with him. These stories made the Mescaleros keep their distance too. By the way, don't you have a book that goes into more detail about Chato? I do. It's a, it's a, uh two-book set that covers the days when he was uh, Geronimo's number two, i.e. his gundo, until they became bitter enemies, and it explains why. Book one is titled Desperate Warrior, and book two is Proud Outcast. Book one will be out in early December of this year, and book two about six months later. I'm so excited about that. Um, and <clears throat> Chato and some of your other the characters in these books, um, many of them are are real historical figures. Um, I see a lot of photos on your Killer of Witches Facebook page, and that's always interesting. So listeners, um, that's actually how I met Michael. I started following him on Facebook and just fell in love with um, his books and uh, the information that he just puts out on Facebook. Right. Um, so yeah, feel free to go ahead with um, Yellow Boy and Chato. This yellow boy tells it, Chato decided to live at the top of Apache Pass on the road to Ruidoso. It's about 10 miles from the agency. His place had no flowing water and he had to haul a week's supply from near the agency in barrels on his, on his wagon. And keep in mind, uh, about this time, uh, Chato was, uh, was about 60. Chato had wanted to be a chief with the Membranos, but the old, but my old friend Nane told me that Katane was his segundo because he and the other elders did not want Chato to lead their people. The stories about him said he was a good warrior, but he had no manners in dealing with his elders, spoke out of turn at councils and invited himself to councils where he wasn't wanted. The Chiricahua moved to Whitetail, set up their tents with iron stoves inside, cut and stacked wood to keep the snow away from the doors and put earth around their tent, uh, around their tent walls to keep out the ghost face cold and to help them keep cool in the season of large leaves. Yellow Boy said, one day Doc Lugie came into the trading post where I sat smoking a cigarro and drinking coffee by the iron stove in the middle of the room. Is it often this cold on the reservation for this time of year? I shrugged, sometimes colder, sometimes warmer. Why? He shook his head and said, I'm used to the damp wind off the plains of Fort Sill. Here it is not as windy, but the cold is dry and feels worse than at Fort Sill. Maybe it just takes some getting used to. I grinned. I heard you ask C.R. Jeffries about when your people will get houses. What's wrong with your tents? I have never lived in an Indo house. Why do you want a house? It seems unmanly. You can't take it with you when you need to move. And inside, it seems like you're living in a cave. 
Dakugi smiled, nodded, and blew the steam from across the top of his cup before he took a slurp and smacked his lips. You have to remember that we Chiricahuas were forced to live with the Inda for 27 years. We didn't have any choice. I went to school at Carlisle, and I learned to read, write, and speak the Inda language and to raise cattle. Inda houses are one of their customs we liked and adopted. They are warm in the ghost face and comfortable and convenient for storing things all the year. An iron stone makes it easier for your women to cook and save food than an open fire in a teepee, and windows let you see out without opening the door, so you have time to think before you let in one who comes. If you have to move, you just find another house someone has left, or you build a new one. But here on the reservation, we don't have to move much, if at all. When is the last time you moved? Houses are good. We want them. Dakugi's words on houses gave me much to think about. Juanita and Moon and I spoke about a house that night, but they weren't ready to live in a house, and I didn't know if I wanted one either. I don't think I was ready to be foolish with my family. I find this part so interesting. Before I read the book, I never thought about the transition from teepee to house and how some natives, natives probably looked at those who made that transition as adopting the Indus ways and like they weren't tough enough anymore. So interesting. So Yellow Boy soon gets some interesting news. Tell us about that. All right. As Yellow Boy tells it, during the harvest time, the Indus called 1914, C.R. Jeffress called me to his workplace in the agency. He said, Yellow Boy, I have some good news for you. This telegram says that your son, Haya, the one we call David, will finish school in June, what you call the season of many leaves, and will be coming back to Mescalero. I know you must be very proud. It had been eight harvests since Haya had gone to the big school in the east. I remember, I wondered if he would remember his family, if the White Eye School had taken all that was Mescalero out of it, and if he remembered anything about hunting and war I had taught him when he was a child. I wondered about many things that might make him think he was no longer my son or an Apache. My thoughts made my guts feel like I had eaten bad meat. When the sun came for Haya to come on the iron wagon, I borrowed a wagon and team from the agency and left early to meet my son. I came early to the Tularosa iron wagon station and sat on the edge of the porch to smoke a cigar oil and a blessing to the four directions and to think of what I should say and how I should act around Haya. Only one rider got off the iron wagon. He was tall for an Apache. His hair was short behind his neck, but longer than normal over his ears. He wore a big flat brimmed black hat pulled down in front to shade his eyes and a long black coat like the ones I saw Inda Diane's wear. He looked my way and I was startled at how much he looked like his mother, Juanita. My knees were weak when I slid off the edge of the porch and walked toward him. A big grin filled his face when he saw me and he dropped his case and stood straight for me. I reached him and looked over his face. I liked the good man I saw there. I said in the tongue of the Indah words I had practiced many times, my son has returned to the land of his father and family. We're glad you come. 
he put his hand on my shoulders and said in perfect Apache, Father, I've come home, come to you and my family, come to help the people. My heart soared, flying high like a bird. Stop it. You made me cry on this part when I read it. It was so sweet. It's, you know, such a sad thought, though, these people like so many of our ancestors had to say goodbye to the children they normally would have spent every waking hour with, even more than today's society. They were together all the time, um, unless they were off on a hunt separately for some reason or whatever, but they returned grown up and they lost many of their tribal ways. So I'm glad they were reunited again. So Yellow Boy continues, during the wagon ride back to Mescalero, Haya tells me of his harvest in the Indian Inda school and how he had learned many things, including what he had learned to do with numbers and what the stories meant that the Inda told about the earth, moon, and stars. I said, Inja, to know these things will help our people understand and know the Inda and grow strong again. Has Osun sent your power yet? He looked away at the mountains to the south, then to his feet, and slowly shook his head. Usun won't come to me, father. I've become a Christian. Perhaps the Christian God and Usun are the same spirit. I don't know. Maybe I'll learn the truth when I'm back among the people. I puffed my cheeks and blew in sadness. The Inda school had done what I had feared. It had separated Haiha's heart from his people and his family. I hoped he would find a way back to us. Only Usun could make it so. He asked me something that made me smile. What of Bella Chesi's daughter, Quiet Dove? Has she had her hahe? Has a man taken her yet? I laughed aloud. So this is the reason you returned to Mescalero. Yes, she has had her hahe. No man has taken her. Why has she not been taken? Did she become ugly or develop nasty habits? I laughed again. No, not ugly. And Carmen Rosario taught, taught her to have manners and be a clean woman in all things. She is very good for the eyes, but she has turned down many offers. Vila Chesi and Carmen Rosario are not happy with her. They want grandchildren here on the reservation. Be careful if Vila Chesi thinks you're interested, he'll make her take you. Sounds like love could be in the air. Yeah, he definitely had his mind on her. Mm -hmm. Yellow Boy said, my women and sons sang happy songs welcoming Haya back. Juanita kept saying he had left a child and returned a good man. Moon showed him her basket work, and he said good things about how excellent and useful they looked and how the Indah would want them as trophies to show their friends. He said this in the Mescalero tongue and spoke it well. I was glad and proud when I learned this. The Indah had not taken the language of his fathers from him. My women and youngest sons had set up a teepee next to ours. This, there he could stay until he decided where he would live and what he would do. And there he slept that night. There were three unmarried young women and a young divorced woman at our feast. I saw them all taking the measure of Haya with many side glances as he smoked and visited with their families. But Haya's eyes followed only quiet dove. Bella Cheesy and I looked at each other and smiled in the pleasure of the moment. The great wheel of life was coming full circle once more. Perhaps one day our families would share a grandchild. 
Piha told us that C.R. Jeffers offered him a job to help with the tracks on paper that he had to send to the chiefs in the East and told him that he might be asked to teach some in the school. He'd also said there was a room at the school where he could live. Piha told us that he had agreed to take the clerk's job and the room at the school until he found or built his own house. I said, why not just live in your teepee? He smiled. I don't have the strength you do, father. Piha would come three or four times in a moon to our teepee and telling us stories he read in the Inda paper about the Inda war in the land east of the big water. He told us of the Inda shot rifles and shoots many times guns and used big shoots bar guns with barrels bigger than my upper leg they called cannons. This war was killing many men and using weapons I had never heard of, such as poison air and airplanes. I was glad the war was far away from us, too far to go fight. It was not long after that when Bila Chesi, a big smile filling his face and eyes twinkling, told me that Haiha had come to visit Quiet Dove. We both laughed and slapped each other on the shoulders. I love those two together. <laughs> so what's going on with Hombrecito during this time? Uh, one evening in the season of many leaves, as Juanita and Moon finished cooking the evening meal, I sat by the teepee door smoking while the boys played in the big pine shadows. I looked down the canyon and saw an endai standing at my corral fence, offering fruit to Hombrecito's great black stag and Satanus. I went to see this endai and realized as I approached him that he was Hombrecito. My heart took wings. Hombrecito stayed with us five sons before he mounted Satanus, took his rifle, and returned first to Rufus's ranch where he would keep Satanus and then to comfort his mother who had lived many harvests and was nearing her time to leave for the happy land. When Hombrecito left, he promised to return soon. Soon after that, his mother passed on. Uh, and just uh, to, to provide a little orientation, uh, this is right after, uh, uh, Obrecito has returned from uh, Stanford and is just starting to set up medical practice in Las Cruces. Ah, smart boy. I guess I should say man at this point. So by the way, Yellow Boy was called to Mexico to help Hombrecito. There's an entire story within this story about Hombrecito and Pancho Villa. So listeners, this is really an interesting part of the book, not included in this episode. So don't forget to check out the book, of course. And Hombrecito writes about his calling to Mexico later, right? Yes, that's, that's right. An earlier novel... Uh, titled Night of the Tiger, and night is in uh, uh, the sword-wielding kind of night, uh, tells the story of Hombrecito and Yellow Boy helping Pancho Villa in his civil war with Carranza. Pancho Villa was an old friend of Hombrecito and Yellow Boy from the days when they lived with the Sierra Madre Apaches, which is told in Night's Odyssey. Hombrecito eventually returns home and goes to the reservation to visit Yellow Boy and his family where he and Haya met for the first time. As Yellow Boy tells it, Haya took the hand Hombrecito offered and they shook easily, like Indah do. 
And then still shaking hands, they wrapped their free arms around each other and hugged. I know that Indi custom long parted friends and brothers do. Haya said, I have often wondered when I might meet Hombrecito. Welcome, brother. Hombrecito's smile filled his face. I owe much to Yellow Boy and his family. At last, I meet Haya and know all my brothers. Hombrecito turned his attention to Yellow Boy. I know how much you enjoy life in your teepee. You have lived in one since you and your family left Bosque Redondo. But now I want you and the rest of your family to have a house, a good house, one that keeps you warm in the ghost face and cool in the season of big leaves. I owe you my life in many ways, and I will always come to Mescalero when you need me. Rufus left me money. I know you don't care about money, but I want to use it to make you comfortable and make less work for Juanita and Moon. I want to help you build a house. Will you have one? I looked at them knowing they had good hearts in this, but such a change is a hard thing. Living in a house meant that we couldn't move where and when we wanted. It meant more of our freedom and independence was gone because we must always camp in one place. It meant we would never again be as close to the land as when we touched the earth every sun, when we sat by our fires or lay down to sleep every night with our bodies. It meant we became more like Enda and less like Apaches, where we once roamed and raided free. Now we lived inside lines drawn on a map inside lines made with boards on the house. I knew like the seasons, life changes, like the earth, all things change. That's when flowers bloom and grass grows green in the season of many leaves and then passes away in the season of the earth is reddish brown. When the windows blow cold or when the winds blow cold and ice comes in the ghost face, but life returns in the season of little eagles and the seasons of my life. I was happy first with one wife and then two. It took us a long time to have children. And for our own reasons, each wife had to live for many harvests in separate camps. But we had stayed together and our family had grown. Powerful witches had tried to destroy us, but now they were no more. Maybe, I thought, a new season comes. Juanita, pulling her blanket over her shoulders, said, Husband, we have listened to our sons. I would speak that you might know what is in the heart of your women. My sister and I are becoming old women. My days to have children have passed. Perhaps this is also true with your second wife. If our grown sons want to help us build one, then I think we should build it. That is all I have to say. I bet that was a big pill for him to swallow to consider that idea of the move to a house. <clears throat> Yellow Boy continued, one son at the time of shortest shadows, Haya drove a wagon with uh, building supplies to the house. With him was the new Catholic priest who lived on the reservation in the little house next to the gathering house for ceremonies he performed every seven sons. 
Before Haya could introduce us, the uh, missionary was off the wagon and had walked up to me with his hand out for a shake. The people have pointed you out to me, and I'm honored to meet the great marksman and warrior, Yellow Boy. I'm Father Braun. Haya has done me a great favor in bringing me to you. He's a fine young man. I know you're proud of him. I took his hand, looked in his face, and saw nothing in his eyes but truth. We pumped hands twice. Father Braun said, Haya tells me your adopted son is a doctor in Las Cruces and is helping you build your house. It looks like it will be a fine big one. I have some skill with carpentry tools. I'll be glad to help you. We finished the house early in the season of the earth is reddish brown. It was built much better and three times bigger than the house of Rufus, as Ombrecito said. Ombrecito brought a big iron stove like Rufus used to cook on, and there was a great stone fireplace to warm the big room and to use for cooking when Juanita and Moon wanted an open fire. He also brought a table and chairs to use for working, cooking, and eating. The front door faced east, so the sun came first to our windows, and we only had to step out on the front porch for us and to hear our prayers. A wood trough sealed with tar carried water from the spring in the canyon down to the house and to a watering tank in the corral. So what did Yellow Boy and his family think of the house after it was built? After the house was finished, we slept in the, we still slept in the teepee. <laughs> the women wanted to get used to being in the house and to learn how to cook on the big iron stove before they left the teepee. It was easy for us to use the furniture Hombrecito brought us. It was not easy for us to use the furniture Hombrecito brought us. It didn't feel right to sit up high off the ground. All of us sat on the wood floor by the fireplace rather than in the chairs when we ate inside. The floors were hard to sleep on, and sometimes the fire in the fireplace or iron stove made the rooms too hot for good sleep. I did not rest well, and neither did my women. However, our young sons didn't mind the hard floors and thought it was a big adventure to sleep inside a house like an endot. We let them do this when they wanted. Despite the cold air and winds, we slept in the teepee because it was never too hot, and blankets on the ground gave us better rest. After a couple of moons, I thought, we can always sleep in the house for Hombrecito, but it will be a long time before I'll sleep in it every night. We used the teepee most of that winter, only sleeping on the hard floors of the house when the teepee and a good fire with many blankets over us still left us a little cold. Hombrecito laughed with us that we still wanted to stay in the teepee. It's too funny, but I get it. One day the sun was fast falling into the white tops of the western mountains when Ombrecito and Haya came to visit us. Ombrecito said, we have news. They told of how big Chief Woodrow Wilson says the Germans will help the Nakayis attack the Americans, and if the Americanos are driven off the land, will help the Nakayis keep it. Americans are very angry about this paper and want war against the Germans, and they wanted to enlist in the service. My heart filled with a strange mixture of pride and sadness that Ombrecito and my oldest son were going across the big water to fight the German Inda. Pride that they were fighters, sadness that they might die. The choice is yours to make, my sons. I won't speak against you. Do as you must. Ben Haya said, Father, I need your help in marrying. 
I want quiet dove for my wife in the way of Endah. I have asked her to be my woman, and she has agreed. I can't leave a pony for her to return fed and watered to show that she accepts me. Still, I want to give Bella Cheesy and Carmen Rosario a bride gift. Will you speak for me? Father Braun has said he will marry us in the Catholic way whenever we want. And I'll do any Mescalero ceremony Bella Cheesy and Carmen Rosario want. I laughed. My women covered their mouths as they laughed too. It was a time of dark clouds in the distance and bright sunshine on our faces, a time of worry and a time of hope. I looked at Homercito and raised my, my brows. He grinned and shrugged his shoulders. He had no one to whom I needed to speak for a bride gift. I nodded toward Hyatt. Does Quiet Dove understand you plan to go to the White Eye War across the big water? She does. We've talked about this many times during the ghost phase. She wants to marry before I go. Injure, what will you offer as a bride gift? A house that I would build next to the one I built for Quiet Dove and me, working for C.R. Jeffers. I know how to do this now that the Chiricahuas are getting their houses. I And I have some money I've saved that will help with furniture and a stove when they leave their teepee. Haya has learned wisdom. I will speak to Bella Chizhi with the next son. And so they were married. Aww. So it was soon time, though, to send up Ombrosito and Haya to battle. Before he climbed on the iron wagon, I took Haya's shoulders in my hands and said, be a strong warrior, kill many German Inda, then come home. He looked far away over my shoulder. My father is a great warrior. He'll know I'm his son. I watched the iron wagon roll down the iron road until I could no longer see even its smoke on the horizon. During this sad time, however, Juanita and Moon told Yellow Boy some good news. In the season of little eagles, you will be a grandfather. I felt my face cracking with a smile. Quiet dove carries Haiha's child, does he know? They nodded. I stared across the teepee and in my mind saw still another circle of life beginning. In the season of little eagles, about the same time Haya went across the big water to fight the Inda Germans, Quiet dove had Haya's first child, a boy who had Haya's nose and mouth and Quiet dove's eyes. His hands from his first days could grip my finger in the strength of a steel trap, and he didn't know what it was to cry. He was a true Apache child. Such good news. So how is everything going, though, on the war front? Redondo and, and Hidlo took turns reading the letters from their brothers to us as we sat around the teepee cooking fire. The letters told us how our sons and brothers were helping the French and English Inda fight the German Inda from holes in the ground and how bad life was in the blood-soaked mud around them. One letter even spoke of the German Inda trying to poison their air to blind, maim, and kill them. But the wind usually carried the bad air away. 
the letters always ended with them telling us not to worry and that they would return from the war soon. Their stories told me I had never seen any war like it, even when Humber Cito and I helped Pancho Villa fight Carranza in Mexico. Haya and Humber Cito knew, saw, and heard a much bigger war that killed many more than I would ever know. They proved their courage as the strongest and best warriors as the old Apache did when making war in the long ago times. One night, Redondo read a letter to us from Haya as we sat around the fire. Its track said, my children will live in two lands. They will dance in the ceremonies of our people and sing the songs of the Inda. When I return from this land of death, mud and blood, I want to teach the children of my people the power of the Inda that we might grow strong from it. My father, I remember the stories you told me of the agent Stotler back in the bad times for our people. When we have the power of the Inda upon us, the power of men like Stotler over us will be gone forever. Please make my brothers Redondo and Hidlo understand this and learn all they can at the Inda school so they can also help our people. A few cents later, I sat on a blanket smoking and talking with Bill Chesi under some pines next to my wife's teepee. In the low light, I heard water splash and the click of rocks on the trail. I saw the black outline of a rider slowly jogging up our canyon. I thought, I wonder who comes to visit us. It wasn't long before I recognized Sabado in his police sergeant's uniform and smiled as I remembered the time when I shot holes in his hat and those of his backup men to warn them away from our village in the Rinconada. I glanced at Bilicezi and saw he smiled too, probably remembering the same time in the Rinconada as me. I said, ho, Sabado, the cooking pot bubbles. Come have a smoke with Bilicezi and me before we eat. He shook his head. Even in the fading light, I saw the frown on his face and knew there was trouble. He said, I cannot stay. Agent Jeffress sent me with this paper holding tracks from the talking wire that just came for Quiet Dove. He stepped over to the blanket and handed her a sealed telegram. She too saw the trouble in his face and with trembling fingers pulled the talking paper out of his paper bag and squinting in the low light read to us. Received at Mescalero Agency, Otero County, New Mexico, Washington, D.C., 4.32 p.m., November 3rd, 1918. Ms. Quiet Dove Hyatt, deeply regret to inform you that Sergeant Hyatt, Yellow Boy, Infantry, is officially reported killed in action 18 October, Paris, acting the adjutant. General, 4.55 p.m. All the women but Quiet Dove stared at the blanket and then buried their faces in their hands, and there was the sound of grief, a sigh as of wind moaning high in the trees. Quiet Dove, saying nothing, stared at the paper trembling in her fingers. Then she squared her shoulders and, carefully folding it, put it in her dress, scooped up her son, Ishkane, and settling him on his sash, began lacing its cover over him. She said to Juanita and Moon, who were on their knees to help with the baby, my medicine says Ishkane and I must go. My belly will not hold food in this bad time. Will my mother and father walk me and Ishkane to my house? Sabado tugged at his hat and said, if you would ride my pony, I would be proud to lead it to your house. 
quiet dove shook her head. Officer Sabado, you are very kind and I thank you, but I need time with myself and my family and prefer to walk with my mother and father. Sabado nodded, giving us a little hand salute off his hat. He mounted his pony and trotted off down the creek. Carmen Rosario helped quiet dove lift the sash to her shoulders. I felt Bilicezzi's warm hand squeeze my shoulder as he stood and said, we're ready, daughter. Tottering on his old legs, a wandering spirit on arthritic knees, his face unmoving as if chipped from stone, he followed his women and grandson and vanished in the shadows of the night. What was Yellow Boy feeling at this time? He tells us, I found myself as if awakening from a dream, staring into the darkness feeling water in my eyes and trying to swallow a ball of thorns in my throat. I had not felt this way since the long ago time when I had found my father killed and scalped among the bodies in our Guadalupe Mountains village that had been burned to nothing but ashes. I felt my spirit sinking inside me, falling like a leaf in darkness, drifting to the ground. Time seemed to slow like the times when I had to shoot fast and straight from high on a canyon ridge. Wolf again howled to his brothers. I wanted to join him and howl in my misery. My women folded their blanket and without words went to the teepee, moonlight shining in the water on their faces. I sat in the cold night air for a long time to smoke and think of old times and feel the loss of Haya cutting my spirit. Off in the darkness down the canyon, I heard a woman wail, almost a scream of pain. Bila Cheesy appeared out of the moonlit, moonlight shadows. I said nothing and motioned for him to join me. He dropped down beside me on the blanket, looked in my face and then at the blanket, shaking his head. I pulled a cigar over from my shirt pocket, lighted it, and we smoked to the four directions. The light from its burning tip marking our faces with deep black shadows and its soft orange glow. After we finished, I ground out the cigarro's fire and Bila Cheesy stared off into the darkness saying nothing. I looked into the face of Bella Cheesy and said, so, the father of our grandson goes to the happy place, a warrior. I never knew him as a warrior. I know he will be welcomed. I have great pride in him. When he was a small child, the Enda took him and tried to make him forget the people. He didn't forget us. He came back to us. He gave us his wisdom. Now the Enda have taken him again and he won't come back. We sat together for a while in the silence of men who are friends and brothers, sharing a black time and their groaning spirits. Juanita sat silent and rocking back and forth in her misery. Moon sat staring at her hands in her lap. As the moon began to fall, Juanita reached behind her belt and pulled out her sharp, shiny knife with a long blade she used for cooking, gathering the food and making baskets. Moon also pulled her knife. Their knives reflected the moonlight and filled their sad faces with shadows. Juanita said, our son is gone to the happy place. I know he respects the way of our fathers. I cut my hair to mourn him. 
Moon nodded, as do I. Now I pulled the knife and held it up with those of my women and said, We take our hair in grief and pray to Usun to speed our son's journey to the happy place and to recognize a true warrior comes to him, one who deserves his acceptance. Our heads were cold as we went to our bed and most of our hair gone. The last thing I remember of that night was Juanita's long sigh. The water in her eyes was no more. What happened to uh, Hombrecito during the war? Uh, Hombrecito survived the big Indah War and came back to us. But his memories of that war were ghosts that haunted him for a long time. We moved from the teepee to the house that afternoon. C.R. Jeffers received a letter from Highness Chief asking that it be sent to Quiet Dove. The letter said Hyah was very brave and his chiefs and the men he saved would never forget him. His chief had asked that he be remembered with the Medal of Honor. Truly, as I knew, my son was a great warrior and the spirit grew when I heard it and my spirit grew when I heard these words. In the next harvest, we moved from the teepee. The big chiefs in the east made a law that Indians who fought in the war across the big water and their families had the same rights as the Indah. Haya had won the reward for which he fought. Five harvests later, all Indians were given those rights. That and your story and trilogy about yellow boy Mescalero Apache. I know you've spent years researching and compiling these many events into an interesting story with that overarching thought of this pivotal time for the Mescaleros who were having to leave their world of freedom behind while trying to maintain some of their Apache ways and living amongst the Inda rules. I know there's the writings of Henry Fountain and of Ombrecito. So what other people and places of history and research did you draw from to pull all of this together? Uh, Linda Sanchez, who helped Eve Ball with her work, particularly the oral history in the book In Day, and who is now working on the history of the Sierra Madre Apaches, who they were, where they came from, and if they are still there, had been a guide, has been a guide and an inspiration and helped me see the world as the Apache saw it. Photos from the Library of Congress, the National Archives, commons.wikimedia.org, the Denver Public Library and Mexico State Library Archives have helped a great deal in my storytelling and understanding of those days. It's amazing how the threads of historical characters, Apache and white, weave together to support a, a tapestry where the image and part supports another seemingly unrelated part. Just about any history I find about the Apaches has information nuggets that I can and have used. Well, we thank you for it. Listeners, don't forget to check out this trilogy that contains much more than I had time to put into this episode. You'll find the books Killer of Witches, Blood of the Devil, and The Last Warrior by W. Michael Farmer on Amazon and other sites where you get your books. And check out his other great books at wmichaelfarmer.com.
Michael, do you have any parting words for us today? I agree with the writing of philosophy of Hillary Mandel, who won Booker Awards for her stories about the life and times of Oliver Cromwell, advisor to Henry VIII. Ms. Mandel said she uses fiction as an enrichment of the historical record, not an escape from it. In my work, the closely studied historical record forms the skeleton of what I write. My fiction forms the blood, breath, and soul of the story. I believe these historical stories come from a uniquely American epic in history and that there's as much we can learn from them that will teach us an understanding about what's happening in America today. And I thank you for listening to my stories. Thank you, Michael. And thank you, listeners. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening to Native Chalk Talk. Be sure to join our community on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Simply search for Native Chalk Talk. That's Native, C-H-O-C-T-A-L-K. And check us out at nativechalktalk.com. Stay tuned for the next episode. You're going to love it. Yakoki. Thank you, my friends.